0: 1 Kings chapter 19, I'd like for us to start reading in, um, in verse 1 and read down through verse 19. 1 Kings 19, 1 through 19. And since this is the word of the living God breathed out by the Holy Spirit, would you please stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the word of our God? The Holy Spirit says this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' And he said, "'I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword.'" And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, shall Elisha put to death, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. May God bless his word to us. Tonight, you may be seated. Kentucky is one of the few places that I would confess this. But I previously had a problem with chewing tobacco. Now, I was 10 years old, but I had gone to stay with my uncle in western Tennessee for about three weeks, and while I was there, uh, all the boys there chewed tobacco, and all the preachers there chewed tobacco. And I started uh, chewing tobacco. Sometimes people, it takes them a long time to sort of get victory over that sort of thing. It took me exactly three weeks because as soon as I got home and my mother found out about it, it was, it was all gone. But for those three weeks, I was chewing red man tobacco and thought I, was, thought I was a big man, staying there with my uncle who was a pastor of a church. He lived in a parsonage right next to the church. But no matter how big I might have felt during the daytime with that red man chewing tobacco, at night, I didn't feel quite as big because he would come in and he would read ghost stories out of Edgar Allan Poe and that sort of thing and kind of get us all creeped out right before bed. One Saturday night, he happened to, after he finished reading stories, to look out the window over at the church And he got very serious, and he said, who knows how many demons are in that church right now? That was my first Saturday there, and I thought, what kind of church is this? But he kept on going, and he said, tomorrow morning, there are going to be people who are going to be there who are going to hear the gospel. There are people who are going to be there in marriages that are about to split up. There are going to be people there who are just about to give up on all sorts of things, and they're going to hear the word of God. They're going to be people who are gathered together in the spirit of God, worshiping God. All of those things are going to take place tomorrow, and the powers of darkness do not like it. So who knows how many demonic presences there are in that church building. Thought about that a lot. Next Saturday night, though, he came and said to me that his wife, had left a cake plate in the kitchen back behind the sanctuary in the family life center of that church, and that he needed me to go and get it. And that the way that you had to go and get it was to go in through the front door, he gave me the key, walk through the building all the way to the end, into the kitchen, and to get the cake plate. He was not the sort of person that you could say no to, Uh, even if I had lived in the kind of culture that would say no or no, sir, to an adult, certainly not to a preacher. So I went over, put the key in the door, opened it up, and all I could hear in my mind is who knows how many demons are in this building on a Saturday night. And not wanting to flip the light switch because I didn't know where it was, I just moved as quickly as I could through the sanctuary find the cake plate, and then exit out the front door where as soon as I came out of the doors of the church, I could just feel my heart pounding inside of my chest. I thought about that a lot. Because over the years, I've come to conclude two things. One of them is that my uncle was exactly right, that there are principalities and powers in the heavenly places We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against them. And those principalities and powers in the heavenly places fear something more than everything else, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing that I realized out of that is that there would be many moments in life where I would feel the force of fear. And every one of you in this room, in whatever kind of ministry that God's called you to, feel or will feel the force of fear. Sometimes when people come to this passage in 1 Kings chapter 19, they see in this an example of burnout. You have Elijah here, someone who is desolate, somebody who's desperate, somebody who's crying out, oh God, I I don't want to do this anymore. Why don't you just let me... Die, And yet, I don't think that what's happening in this passage is as much burnout as it is exactly what the Scripture tells us here. Elijah was afraid. But I think in this passage of Scripture, we see something about the kind of ministry that God has called every single one of us to. And here's why. I want you to notice what's happening here in the life of Elijah, prophet of God. This is somebody who has just right before this passage confronted the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and has had this triumphant moment of victory where as they are crying out to their false gods and idols, Elijah says, God, show yourself to be alive and show me to be your prophet by sending down fire from heaven. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering. Now, That is something I would love to have. I'm talking to an atheist in the morning about uh, issues related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it sure would be nice with all of the unbelievers that I talk to, to sort of end the conversation by saying, Lord, send down fire from heaven. Boom. And then just to say, how do you like me now? Let's... Continue on with the conversation. But that hasn't happened with me. It, it happens, though, with Elijah. And then Elijah finds himself here on the run. He is going out into the desert. He's going out into the wilderness. And you'll notice what's happening in the life of Elijah. He's, he's trapped. He seems powerless. He seems lonely. He seems humiliated. He seems directionless. He doesn't know where to go from here. But if you will notice in this text, God shows up in that moment of fire in a very momentary and indirect sort of way. God shows up here in this fear and brokenness very, very close Elijah. The reason why, I think, is because what God is doing here with Elijah in the wilderness is not all that different from what God is doing in that confrontation on Mount Carmel. At Mount Carmel, God demonstrated he is God and Baal is not. Now, in the wilderness, what God is doing is removing the Baal from Elijah. You'll remember what Baal is. He's a fertility god. He's a thunder god. He's the sort of god that's going to bring power. You worship Baal not because you loved him, not because you think he loves you. Nobody would have imagined, honk, if you love Baal, or Baal loves me, this I know. Instead, you worship. Baal so that he could give you something. And what he was going to give you is a crop. He was going to give you rain. He was going to give you power. That's what the religion was. That religion still exists all over the place. And every single one of us are susceptible to it. The idea that we can use God... To give us the power to execute all the things that we want to do, which would be the same things that we would want to do if Jesus were still dead. But what does God do? He takes Elijah out here into the wilderness. This pattern shows up over and over and over again in Scripture, where He takes His prophet, He takes his people out into the wilderness. And while he is there, he demonstrates in Elijah something about what the kingdom of God is like. And what the kingdom of God is like is the way of the cross. I want us to look at a couple things here. First thing is this the way of the cross means that loneliness is the path to community. Have you noticed what Elijah says here? He, he's out here, he's afraid. And he says to God, I wish I could die. I'm no better than my fathers. He says, everybody has gone away. Everybody has abandoned the way of the Lord. And I, only I am left. There is nobody, it seems, in the life of Elijah. Not only that, there is nobody, he thinks, among the people of God. There is a sense of aloneness and loneliness here. Isn't it obvious what loneliness is able to do? How many people right now in our communities, in our churches, are addicted to opioids, addicted to alcohol, addicted to despair? How many people find themselves slinking into more and more and more despair because they don't have connections with other people? And when that's an epidemic in American life, how much more so is it a problem in ministry life? When you find yourself in a situation where you're serving the Lord and you're serving the Lord and you're serving the Lord and you don't think that you can talk to your people... Because you're their leader. You don't want them to hear you saying, I feel really discouraged right now. So you just pretend like you're encouraged. You you don't really feel like you can talk to other pastors sometimes. Because you think, well, they might think that something's going wrong with me. Something's going wrong with my church. And I'm supposed to always be acting like everything's good. this loneliness can easily come upon the life of ministry. And that happens so often that what we sometimes do not see is that the kind of loneliness, those moments of loneliness, if we will turn to the Lord, if we will turn to the Spirit of God, what we will find is that God in that and in that moment is actually creating and forming community. Elijah believes that he is alone. He says, I'm the only one left. In the same way that Simon Peter says to Jesus, we are the only ones here and we have left everything. And what does God say? There are 7,000 that you don't know anything about who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And not only that, God says that what God is doing invisibly all around Elijah is bringing about a future community that he can't even imagine right now. In the same way that the Apostle Paul will say to the church at Galatia in Galatians chapter 2, I did not yield to the false teachers for a minute. Why? Why? would have been easy to do that. He said, I didn't yield to them for a minute. Why? So that the gospel would be preserved for you. A lot of times the decisions that you have to make that will make you feel as though you are very alone. A lot of times, a lot of the things that we're discipling the people in our congregations to do as they live out the gospel of Jesus Christ will make them very alone. Make them sometimes cut off from their families and cut off from their peer groups and ridiculed by the people around them. But that momentary time of loneliness is what God uses to build and to form a community that is his church, a church of faithfulness. That's the way of the cross. But notice, secondly, in the way of the cross, Weakness leads to power. Elijah here is exhausted. Elijah is at a point where he seems to have no power at all. And God comes to him and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then the scripture says, there's a wind, there's an earthquake, there's a fire. That says, God is not present in the wind, God is not present in the earthquake, God is not present in the fire. Why not? Because God is not Baal. Baal is the thunder God. Baal is the nature God. Baal is shock and awe. But God here is present, Scripture says, in the sound of thinnest silence. That's where God was present. Why? Because the scripture tells us that the power of God is not the same as the power of man. What we want is to have these visible demonstrations of winning and displaying. Why? Because we want to worship ourselves. Because we want to worship the power itself. We don't want to come to that point of absolute dependence. But the Apostle Paul says, I was brought to nothing. Have you ever been brought to nothing in ministry? Have you ever been brought to that point where you say, I'm just not sure that I can get in that pulpit again. I'm just not sure that I can walk out and lead that vacation Bible school again. I'm just not sure that I can go off on that mission trip again. Have you ever experienced that? If you haven't, you will. And Paul says, God brought us to that point so that we would not rely on ourselves, but so so that we would rely upon the God who gives comfort and so that we would then be able to comfort others. If all that you experience is power, 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 then you're going to conclude that broken people around you must just have something wrong with them. So what God does for you is to break you so that through you, the power that flows from the cross will then go to other people, Elijah sees this power here, which is a very different power than the power of Baal, even very different, probably, than what we, he would have considered to be the power of God. He says, no, 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 my power is found in weakness. And then notice finally, in the way of the cross, irrelevance is the path to the future. Elijah says, I'm the only one here, I'm the only one left, and God says, I have left a remnant, I have left a remnant of 7,000, Paul points to this later on in Romans 9 through 11, says, through this remnant, God is going to carry the word of God down through the generations, even to this present moment, And that God is faithful to keeping his own word. So he says to Elijah, in the middle of his brokenness, in the middle of when Elijah feels as though he is irrelevant to anything, I want you to anoint Hazael on the outside, king of Syria. I want you to anoint Jehu on the inside, king of Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha as your successor. I don't know if you all have ever seen anything like this, but I have a lot. When you see a transition in a church from one pastor to another, especially from a pastor who has served a long, long time to a new pastor. When I see that done well, and I've seen that done well several times, you almost want to sit down and say, I want to take notes about how this has happened because so often we see the reverse, And why does that happen? It happens often because what happens when you start to transition from a ministry you have led to a ministry that somebody is going to be leading now? You start to see your own mortality. You start to feel as though I'm not relevant anymore. You start to see, well, maybe I'm not the future of this and this person is. And sometimes there can be this, this kind of tumult that can come along with that. We see that often in Scripture. We see that often in our lives. But what is God saying to Elisha here, to Elijah here? He is saying the power that you have, the future that you have, the legacy that you have is in your pouring out of yourself Unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. In this moment of seeming irrelevance, God is directing Elijah toward a path in the cross that sees the future as being in the hands of the power of God. How many fellow laborers in ministry have we seen who in their moment of desperation and weakness have sabotaged themselves and blown themselves up with sexual immorality, with pornography, with secret substance abuse? And how many co-laborers in ministry have we known who have avoided all of those things but who have ended their ministries bitter and resentful and keeping a record of wrongs done? The way of the cross is different. And what the way of the cross does, just as it did with Elijah here, is to conform us into the life of Christ in such a way that it doesn't matter whether you go out in a casket of pine or in a chariot of fire. You will carry the cross of Jesus Christ. And in the carrying of that cross, you will see a power that is very different from the power of Baal, the power of power worship itself you will see the power that comes by the Spirit of God that doesn't need to demonstrate itself with visible manifestation. In the same way that the prophets of Baal have to scream and cry and dance to get their God's attention. And Jesus says, you don't need to do any of that. All you need to do is to say, Abba, Father power that comes through God is a power that Elijah doesn't even see here. He doesn't see it with his own eyes until later when the scripture says that when Jesus takes three of his disciples up to the mountain and he's transfigured into light, standing there speaking with him is Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us That Elijah and Jesus were speaking there of the sufferings that were to come in Jerusalem. Elijah sees and recognizes that is where everything is headed to. Simon Peter saying impulsive stupid stuff like he often did. I resonate with Simon Peter. said, let's build some tents here. Let's build some monuments here. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. And the voice that comes from heaven says, this is my son, listen to him. And the text says, when they lifted their heads up, they saw Jesus and Jesus only. If you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. If you try to run with the herd you'll never find genuine community and connectedness. If you try to win and succeed, you'll never find power. If you try to maintain your relevance, you'll never find a genuine legacy. Only if you lose your life will you find it. And a life of conviction is not a life of winning arguments. It's a life of faithfulness. And a life of courage is not a picture of visible strength. It often looks like loneliness and weakness and brokenness. But that's where the power of God is. And if you don't pay attention to the rattling of the wind and the rumbling of the earthquakes and the blazing of the fire if you just listen to that sound of thinnest silence, then you'll hear those words that you heard when you responded to the gospel in the first place. Those words that you heard when you stepped out in faith to surrender to whatever sort of ministry that you're in right now, come follow me. And as you're reminded of that, it just might save your ministry. It just might save your witness, and it just might save your life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray for the uh, ministries and callings that you've given to all of them. Lord, I pray for the people who right now, just as we've already heard tonight, who right now are hostile to the gospel, maybe even kicking against the ministries of some of the people in this room. People that if you looked at them, you would say they'll never be part of the people of God. Who, by your grace, will by this time next year be followers of Jesus Christ. And who, maybe, even some of the ones that we can think of that maybe we're just about to give up on, who may be the great leaders of our churches in the years to come. Lord, we know you've done that before, and you'll do it again. So, Lord, would you enable us in those moments of weakness, those moments of loneliness, to see the path of the cross, to see the kingdom of God that is hidden all around us, but moving forward like an army awesome with banners, and prompt us to worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake.